both sides of the floor. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Show with an intro so nice, you got to do it twice. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Beautiful day shaping up here in Kamloops. A real pleasure to welcome to the program to get the show started with the panel from Global BC, both Keith Baldry and Richard Zussman. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning, Shane. Man, Good morning, Shane. I got to admit to you guys, I'm a little bleary-eyed after uh, being up a little later than I should have been celebrating the Raptors last night. Yeah, that was Raptors fan, eh, Shane? Uh, last two games. <coughs> Something to watch. Something to watch. It was great. Yeah. Long-time fan. Seven, for the last seven days, Shane Woodford has been a huge Raptors fan. <laughs> it reminded me a lot of the Toronto Blue Jays' World Series run uh, a decade or so ago and how it united the country. It was a really cool thing to watch develop. <laughs> It was it was quite something to watch uh, play out on social media as well. It was it was a lot of fun. And as the fans in Toronto, those shots of uh, of the people in the street, my goodness, that's uh, yeah. how, how to party properly. Take note, Vancouver Canucks fans. Yeah, no kidding, right? Okay, what what is not good news, however, uh, is what's playing out in the forest uh, sector. Uh, this sector has been a punching bag for a long time, but I've not seen uh, uh, bad news come the way it has in the last two or three weeks. Curtailments province-wide, mills shut down, so, uh, operations suspended indefinitely from Vavenby to Taylor to 100 Mile House. Uh, we're seeing words thrown around now from, from mayors and communities there, uh, like crisis in the forest industry. Uh, Andrew Wilkinson has now put pen to paper to demand some action from the province. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Uh, Keith, uh, with you, uh, how serious is this? And is the NDP, which has launched this effort to renew the forest industry, are they between a rock and a hard place now on timeline with, with bad news after bad news? Well, this is um, this is a very serious situation. It's a crisis for people who work in sawmills in the interior in the north, uh, and some operations actually in Vancouver Island and Metro Vancouver as well. But all this was foreseen. This is not a surprise. This was uh, predicted uh, once the mountain pine beetle epidemic uh, had taken its toll and all the timber was milled there, harvested and milled, that the timber supply would be reduced, and that's what's happened. It's the lack of timber that's driving this, uh, and it's again, it's the mountain pine beetle it's uh, the wildfires that have ravaged huge tracts of forestry land you've got the softwood duties of 20 percent that are starting to take a, a toll on the on companies bottom lines uh, you've got stumpage increases about to come on july 1st which is going to exacerbate an already terrible situation uh, so again all this was foreseen uh and in terms of what the ndp can do there's not a heck of a lot it's 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 forest strategy is sort of long term it this is there's no short term um uh, cure for this. this is, the industry is going to go through what, it, what they call internally rationalization, where the industry is going to pick winners and losers in terms of mills, and Canfor, West Fraser, Interfor, Tolco are all going to decide which ones uh, are going to survive and which ones are going to uh, pay the price. And what's interesting is the government has passed a law that gives the forest minister the, the potential to sign off on whether a company can trade its timber cutting rights to another company. So it can keep its own uh, its own operations going. That's what Canfor and Interfor are doing on uh, one of their operations, and it remains to be seen whether the NDP is going to dig into this. But you're right, Sean, uh, Shane. Um, rock in a hard place is a good way to put it. There's no short-term solution here at all. Yeah, the uh, the Canfor deal is for Vavenby, just to our north here in Kamloops. Uh, mm -hmm. They want to sell it to Interfor for 60 million dollars. 
Uh, no, you're right. Bill 22, which is brand spanking new. We haven't seen this thing tested yet. It does give some muscle. Uh, I know the local government in Clearwater is saying that uh, they expect to be consulted in. Uh, Simp First Nation, which is up there, has already weighed in and basically told the Canfor to go pound sand on this particular deal. I asked Doug Donaldson, Richard, whether he's going to use his veto power when this thing lands on his desk. Uh, and he obviously wouldn't commit one way or another. But uh, do you think he's going to bring the hammer down here or no? But who's the sense you got from him? Because when I spoke to him, he sounded pretty defeated. Like, I think this government seems frustrated with what's unfolding. Uh, there had been some warning that, you know, this was coming. Like he said, everybody knew this was coming. The province had tried to prepare itself by announcing a few months ago modernization for the industry. But clearly, you know, things did not move fast enough. So... You know, I have no idea if he's going to use the veto or not. I think his number one priority is as best he can protecting jobs in those communities. You know, the story that Doug Donaldson always tells is he lived through mill closures in Hazleton, saw it firsthand. The big priority for the province now, along with trying to salvage the industry as best it can, is to try to retrain some of these workers so they can find jobs in other sectors, which... Is a bit defeatist, but I think based on everything that Keith talked about, it's it's one of the right ways to go, considering that you know the the timber supply is so low. Keith, I talked to Russ Taylor, who knows a thing about uh, the forest industry with Wood Matters Group, and uh, he's working mm -hmm. on a new projection going to 2028. But he told me flat out yesterday, uh, yeah, it's a spate of bad news, but there's going to be a lot more coming. He anticipates another 10 to 12 mills are going to announce uh, they are yep. shutting down or curtailing operations. So is this going to get worse before it gets better? Oh, yeah, no, Nick's not the only one saying this. I mean, the expectation is at the end of the day, there's 6 to 12 mills that will close permanently. On top of that, you've got uh, Canfor's uh, curtailing um, operations at a number of mills. I think we're over a dozen now. We're literally shutting down for a month or two, uh, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, and, and just ceasing operations. What that means is, uh, you know, put yourself in the shoes of a worker at one of these mills. Can, how many people listening to this station right now can go eight weeks without a paycheck? And that's the stark reality facing a lot of employees in sawmills. It's, you know, there's layoffs that, that are going to occur in the hundreds uh, at sawmills, uh, but there's also going to be those who will go without a paycheck for one or two months. And that's, uh, that can be devastating on a, on a family that literally, I mean, a number of studies have shown from Saskatchewan and others that so many people live, the reality is, live paycheck to paycheck. And some of those paychecks disappear for a couple months. That's a crisis. Richard, BC Liberals uh, wrote uh, wrote to uh, John Horgan, the Premier, yesterday with a point-by-point -point thing about action they want to see. Now, there's some real pie-in-the-sky stuff in there. BC has no power to get a softwood lumber deal done, uh, despite what the Liberals might think. On stumpage fees, yes, they're high, uh, but I'm, I'm thinking the softwood lumber ramifications kind of provide roadblocks for the province doing anything on stumpage fees. Uh, what did you think about what the Liberals tabled yesterday? Yeah, the relationship between the Liberals and the NDP is so strained right now that even if these were good ideas that could be implemented, you know, they would be ignored because they come from the Liberals, which is a shame about the climate that we're living in right now politically. But besides that, around the ideas themselves, you know, you mentioned the Salford Lumber deal is something that's been stalled by President Trump. Uh, sure, John Horgan put some pressure on early. He One of his first trips he made as the Premier was to go to Washington. So, you know, he has he has made efforts on that regard, and because there hasn't been any budging, he's backed away from it. 
I think there is talks going on now between B.C. and the federal government. The federal government is about to get very distracted by the fact they're going to enter an election campaign in a few weeks. So, you know, it's one of those things that becomes complicated by a campaign. But no doubt there should be pressure applied uh, to the feds from B.C. And then this Forestry Competitive Committee is interesting. Like maybe it is something that the NDP decides to look at, at least in part, and having dialogue around, you know, more ideas on the table is always good. The province has already thrown out a ton of ideas as part of their forest revitalization plan, and we'll see what they do going forward. And then the, the last factor here is this summer and whether we see fires again, because that could be, you know, another blow to this industry if we see another terrible fire season where we see good timber burnt up and unable to be used. Yeah, I think we're going to see it starting to pick up now, but we're definitely going to see another fire season to what extent uh, remains to be seen. I want to jam this in here before we hit a commercial break. It sounds like the Trudeau government's going to render a decision on the Trans Mountain Pipeline as early as next week. Uh, I have a hard time seeing them say no after they shelled out $4.5 billion to own the thing, Keith. But uh, assuming we get a yes decision, uh, what does that do for this this face-off between the federal government and the John Horgan government here in B.C. when they say, okay, construction's a go? Well, I, I think the Horgan government's a minor player in this whole thing. I mean, the opposition that they've demonstrated against the pipeline is rather tepid. It's this this sort of um, nouveau uh, court case, a court reference challenge that was shot down decisively by the B.C. Court of Appeal. We'll see what the Supreme Court of Canada rules on it. I don't expect them to overturn it. Uh, so the, the Trudeau's fight over this pipeline is not with uh, the, the Horgan government. It's going to be with the, you know, literally people in the street, the civil disobedience and the, and the protests that are going to go with it, and some First Nations court challenges. What's going to be interesting, Shane, I think, after the green light is given, it will be a green light, is the ongoing negotiations that the the federal government is increasingly engaged in with two different First Nations groups. Uh, one, the Iron Coalition, which is uh, First Nations along the route of the pipeline, want to buy the pipeline. The other one is Project Reconciliation, which is an amalgamation of First Nations throughout Western Canada, up to 300 of them, who want to buy 51% of the pipeline. And it's going to be fascinating to see, uh, which is increasingly look like it's going to be uh, likely, that the government's going to partner with some First Nations to operate, to build this pipeline and to operate it. And that is the proverbial game changer. If First Nations get involved here and are a majority stakeholder, even a significant minority stakeholder in that pipeline, it's going to be very hard or much more difficult for the environmental movement to uh, to sort of try to strangle this thing at birth. And it's, because uh, it, again, First Nations bring a legitimacy to the table that may not be seen as being there if it's just the federal government. So it's, uh, it's going to be fascinating to see what, what happens on that, that level of negotiations, which is already starting, but I think is going to ramp up in earnest after the green light's given on June 18th. If pipeline construction starts, Richard, uh, what does the province do? Do they just kind of, okay, well, that's what we're doing now. Uh, do we just wait for the Supreme Court? I mean, there was a time when I believe the Horgan government said, hey, listen, you can't operate on Crown land until we sort this whole thing out. No, I think they no. it will proceed. We'll see how quickly uh, Trans Mountain and and the federal government who owns it will be able to get that work done on the pipeline. Uh, but I think the provincial government backs away at that point and waits to see what happens in the Supreme Court, as Keith mentioned, and as he mentioned, it's unlikely it will be overturned. It's going to be, as Keith said, up to the, the public pressure, and we'll see as more public pressure is applied whether that changes what Premier John Horgan does, but I don't expect that either. Just a final thought quickly from both of you. Do you think that the, the province should... Um, read the room on this thing and just say, okay, you know, we haven't won a single fight, not even not a little fight, not a big fight. 
Uh, it was some good campaign rhetoric, but maybe it's time to face reality and just stand down on this thing. Is it costing them, Keith? Well, Horgan's, uh, it, it's interesting. Rich and I talk to Horgan and his ministers all the time. They never, ever want to talk about Trans Mountain Pipeline. This is not in their in their wheelhouse. It is not a priority for them. They're focused on affordability issues. Uh, as I say, their opposition is a very weak uh, opposition. They received legal advice literally in their first week in power that they had no legal capacity to stop the pipeline. They could not stop issuing permits. As we speak, the, the, the Horgan government is issuing permits to, to Trans Mountain pipeline for for operations so uh, i just think they're just going to quietly go away on this they're going to lose the court case express dissatisfaction uh, and go back to talking about providing affordable child care and doing something about housing prices yeah final word to you richard yeah but i don't think they should back away from their court challenge they've seen it this far this is where they've always wanted to see it tested so let it be tested in the supreme court of canada so we at least have that precedent established all right, gentlemen, let's take a quick break, uh, get to a, a couple commercials. And on the other side, we'll talk about teacher negotiations. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Teacher negotiations, we're talking to Keith Baldry and Richard Zussman. Guys, I talked to Glenn Hansman from the BCTF on Monday. He used words like tense, uh, frustrating. Um, he's now officially, or the union has, as of Monday, requested bargaining dates into October. Uh, I checked in uh, before the show, and so far, no word back from BCPC. Uh, Keith, is this thing de-evolving fast? Are we headed to an impasse? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've covered many BCTF negotiations. A word of advice to the BCTF, hire some professional negotiators. Uh, they leave it in the hands of untried, inexperienced social studies and kindergarten teachers to try to hammer out an incredibly complex contract with an organization that is a professional negotiating organization. So no wonder uh, we're at an impasse. There's actually no real bargaining going on. There never really is with the TF. They refuse to compromise on most issues. Uh, so the, the employees got a proposal there that uh, they've... Uh, they, the BCTF interprets as, as a clawback and, a con and concessions. The employer disagrees, but they won't actually talk about it. So, no, it's, uh, it's going nowhere fast. There's not going to be any settlement before June 30th when the contract expires. We'll go into the summer. Uh, the B BCPC uh, will not uh, negotiate if they see no reason, if they see a little reason to negotiate because there's no actual negotiation. So, my understanding is BCPC is going to tell the, the BCTF if you don't accept the mandate set down by the NDP government, which has been accepted by pretty well every other public sector union, then we're not going to negotiate. And you can just sit out there all summer. Then we come to the fall. And this is where I've been telling teachers, and I've got a lot of teacher friends and relatives, start uh, putting away some money for a special fund because you may have to tap into it come the fall. Not on September 1st when the school comes back, but there's increasingly looking like there could be a lockout of teachers probably in October. And it will be a substantive one. The NDP is not going to give in on this. They can't because to give anything to the TF on exceeding the 2-2-2 two, two, and two mandate would trigger Me Too clauses for other unions. It becomes very expensive. They've already costed the teachers' proposal what they're looking for, 30% uh, more teachers at a billion 
billion dollars. It's just not going to happen. Uh, and the the TF has to get over this 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 feeling that they express on social media that they still think they're negotiating with the BC Liberals. They're not. They're negotiating with the NDP, who have given directions to the BC Public School Employers Association to negotiate on these terms and so we're headed to some sort of cataclysmic outcome here unless there's a giant sea change in the tf thinking yeah and i think the bctf feels like that as well i mean glenn hansman told me hey listen and i'll quote here school will start like normal in the new school year and then quote what happens in the fall will be another matter it mm-hmm. wouldn't be the first time that teachers have been locked out richard what do you think yeah, and I think eventually they'll need to bring in a mediator because, as Keith mentioned, the history is pretty clear here between the two sides. And we knew all along the expectations were going to be astronomical for the TF. They've been waiting a long time for an NDP government who has been an ally of theirs. They got it, and now they expect everything, in some cases, that are seemingly impossible, especially under the mandate coming from the province. So we'll see that mediator at some point, probably in October, and then we'll very much have a similar process to what we saw uh, during the last strike when Christy Clark was bringing Keith, the class size and composition, of course, the big one. Uh, the basic yep. positions here are uh, the union sees the Supreme Court decision as basically a floor that cannot be taken away. The BCPC says, listen, this whole thing, top to bottom, side to side, is wide open for negotiations. How do you move past that? That's that's enough of the matter. Uh, John Horgan is the one who f- uh, twice flagged for us the last time we had a scrum with him about he thinks the 1998 language, which is what this language originates from, is outdated and has to be modernized. And so this is coming from John Horgan, BCTF, if you're listening. It's not coming from Christy Clark or, or uh, BC Liberals. It's from John Horgan. He views the language that was in there under the NDP is unworkable, inflexible, and has to be modernized. The problem, I think, there's a complete lack of trust and this is understandable the tf does not trust the employer to saying uh the employer is saying look just give us some flexibility here we don't want to increase class sizes but in some cases you know we have to sort of work around the edges we can't be locked into these rigid ratios which is what those 1998 uh, language uh uh, puts in place. So you've got a lack of trust from the TF, understandably, because the employer ripped the, the, the language out of the contract arbitrarily. And, um, and they're, they're still, again, they have to get their heads around the fact that the Liberals are not in charge of the system. It's a different government. Can they trust the NDP? It's basically the, what it, this comes down to. Can the BCTF trust the NDP to allow flexibility in the system without greatly increasing class sizes? And until they will get to that point, we're not going to have an agreement. Richard, where do you see, if any, room to move on what is a pretty big conundrum here? So I think there's probably, excuse me, some wiggle room around supports for uh, additional resources in the classroom, but there's no room to move on salary, and I don't think there's any way to move around, uh, you know, the restrict limits is defined by the contract, as Keith mentioned. So, you know, the, the province... Is, is trying to give, right? They are uh, want to modernize, but they also fully understand the decision by the Supreme Court of Canada. So they have put together what they believe is a good offer, and to that offer, again, we don't know all the specifics, but we have a pretty good sense of what's there, that you know, there needs to be a little bit of give from the TF, I think, is the sense that we're hearing all around. All right, we only got a couple minutes left, but I did want to throw this on the table because it's so ridiculous. 
Uh, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, as, a, as tweeted out by <laughs> Janet Brown earlier this morning, has apparently gone to Qatar and has come back and said, wow, that's a pretty amazing canal system they got over there. And according to Janet Brown here, he wants a wandering canal built north to south and has tasked staff to find a street that's not used that much. Keith, what in the hell is going on here? Well, Surrey's curiouser and curiouser mayor, Mr. McCallum. Uh, I wonder about McCallum on a number of issues, not the least of which is the new RCMP. This one came out of the blue. I mean, maybe uh, staff should tell him, don't travel so much, Mr. Mayor, because I invite him to go to other cities around the world and see what other other things he might want to bring to Surrey. Maybe, uh, you know, an Eiffel Tower would be nice <laughs> or something. But, uh, no, this is this is Doug McCallum. I mean, I'm not sure that's a good use of tax dollars. And more than one person I noticed when I tweeted Janet's uh, uh, story pointed out there's not – McCallum wants to find a little-used street in Surrey to do this. And more than one person has pointed out, good luck finding a yeah. little-used street <laughs> in Surrey. I mean, this is a, a, a huge growth area for, for – passes growing this in all of Canada, but to put a canal there, I mean, that's just, uh, yeah. I don't know. Don't get me Pretty going. diplomatic from Keith there, saying he's not sure if it's a good use of money. <laughs> <laughs> I think most people are pretty sure it's a stupid use of money. Yeah. I don't understand what this canal system would do. You know, I know Keith is uh, one of the best tour guides in the BC legislature. Maybe he could get a summer job being a tour Water guide. Water taxi. Yeah, yeah well, one, one person pointed out if there's a canal, there's going to be gondolas. Yeah. Gondolas. Yeah. <laughs> and I can be a gondola... Riverboat cap. There you go. <laughs> oh, man. Well, at least he didn't go to Egypt. Uh, I understand pyramids are expensive Pyramid. to build these days. Pyramid yeah, camels. We could have had it all. Yeah. <laughs> Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Thank you so all much. Right. See you, Shane. Thanks, Shane. All right. That's Richard Zussman and Keith Baldry from Global BC. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics. On the other side, Finance Minister Carol James. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome. Thank you again for tuning in. Real pleasure to welcome to the program this morning, BC's Finance Minister, Carol James. Good morning, Carol. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? Good. Always good to hear your voice. Uh, Carol, yesterday you, you were part of a... Carol, yesterday you were part of a meeting along with Attorney General David Eby, a meeting with your federal counterpart in Bill Morneau and Organized Crime Reduction Minister uh, Bill Blair on the topic of money laundering. Uh, Just curious from your perspective, uh, what, if anything, that was concrete and that BC can look forward to came out of that? Well, I think the the first step was actually getting the other provinces and the federal government all at the table to talk about an issue that British Columbians, unfortunately, uh, know the impact of. Um, When we're talking about money laundering in British Columbia, as you know, uh, both the attorney, David Eby, and myself have commissioned reports. We've now uh, struck a public inquiry on the issue of money laundering, and people may think that it's an issue that doesn't impact them, but when we're talking about uh, the real estate sector and increasing price of houses, whether we're talking about the fentanyl crisis and the opioid, uh, you know, all of those issues are fueled by money laundering, by dirty money coming into British Columbia. And those issues, as we know, sadly, impact families across BC. So getting everyone at the table is critically important. Uh, I've said often that, you know, criminals don't know provincial borders. 
they don't know boundaries. And so if you have one province that closes a loophole, uh, the criminals will find another opportunity to be able to look somewhere else. So it's really important to be able to have these discussions together. The federal government committed to a joint table uh, to be able to include all of the provinces that want to, to be there. So I think that's one step is to be able to look at how we move the kinds of actions that we've taken in British Columbia across the country, something like a land registry that, that we've created in BC, first of its kind, uh, world leading, will require companies, corporations, numbered companies, trusts, to actually disclose who's behind that trust so that they can't hide behind the corporate veil uh, and, and we make sure that that's transparent. So making sure we have opportunities for, for that kind of work is critically important. The other thing the federal government brought to the table yesterday uh, was $10 million for the RCMP. I think it would be no surprise to anyone that uh, we certainly feel that that's not enough, uh, that we need to see more resources uh, and we need to see dedicated resources. It's really the piece that we've been a bit frustrated by uh, is that uh, we really feel you need a specific unit that looks at prosecution and criminals uh, when it comes to the RCMP in the area of money laundering because they face pressures as well and the money gets used somewhere else. So we want to see dedicated funds. On that RCMP funding, and I agree with you, I think we've all been shocked by uh, the revelations trotted out by Sam Cooper over at Global uh, about the lack of policing resources focused on this particular issue. Now, uh, Bill Blair was asked in the press scrum yesterday uh, where that RCMP funding would go. Uh, his quote back was, and I'll repeat it here, he said it's going to go dedicated to where the work is. Carol, how much of that, how much assurances do you have that, that what portion of that money or all of it or whatever is coming to this province and dedicated specifically to our problems here? Well, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head, and, and we were quite upfront uh, with the Federal Finance Minister and with Bill Blair uh, to say that um, words are great, uh, commitments are great, but we want to see the fencing of those dollars. We want to see them actually dedicated specifically to the issue of money laundering because, you know, we're now starting to share data. We're starting to shine a light uh, on what's out there, but that's not going to do any good unless we have the RCMP, the cops on the ground, the people will be able to prosecute these cases and to be able to move them ahead. Uh, you know, we saw a very high profile case fall apart uh, in British Columbia and, and no one wants to see that. So uh, I think they were good words and, and I'm certainly pleased that the federal government has come to the table and encouraged other provinces to join us, but we really want to see the details. We want to see the details of the dollars and we want to see them dedicated so that, you know, RCMP obviously have a lot of demands and a lot of issues for the, themselves to deal with as a force unless they are dedicated resources they'll get pulled off for other activities and we won't get any further ahead so we want to see the action around that some of the revelations have included uh, you know bags of money being taken into bc casinos uh people going onto car lots luxury car lots again with cash money i've been struck by one part of this and it was a quote and i forget who, who said it but it was in the german report basically saying if you crack down on the cash money part of it well that's well and fine but you're dealing with a problem from a decade ago uh, mm -hmm. There are so many different electronic ways to transfer money now. You have uh, apps, you've got cryptocurrencies, uh, you've got all of this stuff. From your perspective, Carol, how important is it to not only deal with the cash stuff and lock down some of these loopholes that have been gaping for far too long, but also jump ahead of the problem? 
Oh, I, I think it's critical. And, you know, one of the, the other uh, quotes I think that stuck with me in, in the Maloney report uh, was really that, you know, transparency, shining a light is the best thing we can do uh, because criminals hide and they're very sophisticated at it. And, and as you point out, they, they work very hard to look ahead and see what the next opportunity is to be able to, to uh, move ahead with their activity. Uh, we need to make sure that transparency is there. So identifying people behind those numbered companies it may seem like a small thing. It may seem like perhaps a you know one more uh, registry somewhere. But in fact, to be able to identify people who are behind numbered companies, and then if there's a criminal activity going on, or or the police have information, they'll be able to to get that information. They'll be able to share that with the investigators. Um, that's one of the best things we can do uh, to be able to do that. So I think it's it's looking ahead. It's being proactive, and it's closing all of those loopholes as they come up. And I don't expect, in fact, that this work ends. I don't think it stops with, you know, we've made a couple of changes and we've closed a few loopholes and we've ended taking cash, for example, in post-secondary institutions, um, foreign students coming in with paying uh, for their tuition and cash. We've ended that. Uh, we've addressed those pieces, but they'll find another opportunity. So we have to stay on top of this. It's why it's so critical to, to have dedicated resources, because I believe the job doesn't end. We have to be vigilant and, and we have to be on top of this. And we have to end our reputation, not only BC's reputation, but Canada's reputation as, as an easy place to come and launder money, as a place that people can, can come and utilize our systems uh, for dirty money. We've got to end that because we have to build back that trust in our institutions. That's critical for, for a democratic country. I want to jam in a couple extra topics here as the finance minister. Uh, I'm sure you've seen what has been an unprecedented wave of bad news in just the last couple of weeks for BC's forestry sector. Uh, for any any news coming, Carol, on, on pots of money or funding uh, to try and help out in this situation or no? Well, I think first off, uh, I think all of us, uh, you know, I know certainly the Forest Minister, but all of us in, in government and all of us in communities uh, send our, our sympathies to the workers, their families, and, and the communities that are impacted by these closures. Uh, it's unfortunate. It's it's not unexpected, sadly. Uh, it's been known for over 10 years with the pine beetle infestation, uh, for example, that, that mills would have to shut down, that there was going to be a lack of fiber. And, and I think it's frustrating, certainly, that, that we didn't see any action being taken when those warnings came at least 10 years ago. Um, but we have put additional dollars in this budget. Uh, people will know when I tabled the budget in February, we put additional dollars in for wildfire prevention activities. Um, that's certainly going to provide some, some short-term work and some short-term support for workers. We're talking with the federal government uh, about making sure supports are in place as well for communities um, to secure more funds for employment programs. Um, it's also important to us uh, that we work together with the, the forest companies, with First Nations, with communities, uh, and with labor to look at the challenges and how we get more value from the forest industry. So the Premier uh, made that statement and commitment uh, at Forest uh, Council's meeting, uh, and that's work that's underway as well. So uh, I think we're, we're certainly doing everything we can. As people know, we have, the, of course, the softwood lumber debate uh, and fight going on. Um, we certainly aren't going to do anything that's going to, to ramp that up uh, because that will cause even even more difficulties if you, for example, um, uh, politically got involved with, with stumpage fees when those are, are done independently. Uh, that obviously would cause even more difficult difficulty for the industry. So we're going to be there for the communities and we're doing everything we can. As you and I are talking, we're getting news about uh, another group of uh, 
school support workers represented by QP who have reached deals with your government, uh, but the BCTF and BCPC have hit uh, what looks like an impasse in class size and composition. As you watch these negotiations through the lens of being the finance minister, what's your concern level? Well, I, again, I'm always an optimist. Uh, perhaps that's uh, just my personality, but uh, I still believe that, you know, we all want to make sure that we have a strong education system. We put major resources, as people know, uh, one of the largest investments in public education when we came in as government in, in 2017. We all want to make sure the system works, most importantly for students, but also for teachers, uh, support staff, others who, who do an incredible job in the system. So I think, you know, we're in, in the process of bargaining we we've hit some bumps and uh and i think certainly we're going to continue our our commitment at the table and and i know that the the teachers have the same commitment to try and get an agreement so i i continue to be optimistic about our our opportunities here but i'll leave bargaining to the bargaining table i think mm -hmm. that's best where it's done yeah fair enough last question now ubcm convention coming in september uh any idea if we can see a marijuana tax revenue sharing agreement done with local governments before then carol or no well, we've certainly been in conversation uh, with UBCM. We've been having some very good conversations. I think, uh, to, to be blunt, I think the challenge we face right now is there's not revenue coming in. Um, the costs are outweighing the revenue coming in, so we haven't seen a, a big boom, and people will know we, we lowered the estimates for, for cannabis revenue over the next year. There are a number of reasons for that. There obviously was a delay in legalization. It didn't happen on Canada Day. You also saw the uh, municipalities have their elections in the fall, which meant you didn't have structure in place to be able to approve licenses. Criminal record checks still have to be gone through because ultimately we want to make sure we get organized crime out of the business uh, of cannabis. And so that's delayed uh, a number of licenses being open. So uh, we're certainly continuing those conversations, but uh, I think it'll be a bit until we start seeing additional revenue to, be actu to actually be able to share uh, with municipalities. Carol, always a pleasure. Thank you for taking some time. Thank you for asking me. I appreciate that, Shane. All right. That's BC's Finance Minister, Carol James, touching on money laundering and some other topics. We'll take a quick break here on The Woodford Show. On the other side, we're going to meet the soon-to-be Green Party candidate in this fall's federal election in the Kamloops-Thompson-Caribou. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Pleasure to welcome into studio uh, Ian Curry, who's uh, going to be acclaimed the Green Party candidate in this fall's federal election. Ian, welcome. How are you? Yeah, great. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for coming in. Uh, listen, uh, it's going to be a, now a crowded ballot. I believe you guys are the last official party to fall into place. Uh, first off, uh, for people who don't know you, uh, give me a little background. Who are you? What are you about? And uh, and what led you down this particular road? Well, I'm a camel was born and raised, uh, lived here other than going away for school and a, a brief stint in, in Nanaimo at the beginning of my uh, my career. I've lived in Kamloops all my life. Mm. And um, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer. I was for many years, about a little less than 18 years, I was a Crown Counsel here in Kamloops. And uh, for the last couple of years, I've been in civil practice, uh, practice of law. I um, have always been interested in uh, in green issues and a supporter of the Green Party. And recently, I have um, uh, realized, I think, many, as many people have, and, yeah. and reading the news and uh, reading the IPCC report about, uh, about the climate crisis, uh, just how, how dire a situation it is and how 
uh, I felt uh, and I feel that I had to sort of get off the fence and actually uh, help to uh, hopefully lead the charge to actually make a positive difference for the world. All right. Um, you're going to be acclaimed on June 26th, I believe? Yeah, that's the date that's yeah. planned. Yeah. Okay. This is literally the shallow end of the pool now. You're, you're just jumping in. Uh, but uh, how does it feel now? Being in, the, being in public life could be uh, a bit of a different thing. It is different sitting in a radio station behind a microphone. <laughs> um, and it's a, it's a bit of an abrupt change. I have some experience in, in public life. Uh, being a Crown Council, you, uh, you know, have a different sort of profile. Uh, and a different relationship with the media. I'm looking forward to sort of learning how to do this and do this better. <laughs> yeah. um, and also learning how to, uh, how to master the sound bites without becoming a, uh, you know, a politician who's only talking in sound bites. Right. My understanding, the, uh, there's lots of hard work involved. Mm. Uh, there's going to be a, a steep learning curve to learn all of the issues and formulate a position for where uh, where I stand and understanding where the the Green Party stands and also understanding the platforms of the uh, you know the other parties and all of the all of the various issues. So I've been interested in what's going on in the you know in the news. Yeah. Uh, but I'm finding that my superficial knowledge of uh, of different things that I when I look at headlines now I spend a lot more time focusing on okay I, I need to have a deep understanding of this mm. I don't have that yet but uh, hopefully it'll come one of the things about this particular riding of the Calmos Thompson Caribou is huge you know it comes way up the North Thompson all the way over to 100 mile house places like that it covers a lot of ground uh, so there's obviously probably maybe one of the bigger metro centers is here but one of your challenges as is everybody else's challenge is to get out there and build a relationship with the voter and and attract those votes, but get let them get to know you. Uh, with a riding this size and, and so many different communities and different issues in those different communities, uh, I know that we're in, we're in our infancy here, but uh, what's the plan? Just just get out there and shake hands or use social media? Like, what is your sort of uh, strategy at this point to, to say to this particular riding, hey, I'm Ian Curry, I want you to get to know me? I have started on uh, on social media to some extent, but... Uh, especially with a big riding and especially with uh, smaller communities. I know lots of people in Kamloops. I've lived here for a long time. I know many fewer people in 100 Mile and Clearwater. So I just need to get uh, to get my boots on the ground there and yeah, put my face in front of people and uh, talk to anyone who's interested in talking to me. You got five candidates, including yourself. Obviously, the incumbent, Kathy McLeod. Uh, she has served a number of terms here, so she's a well-known person. You got Terry Lake, former mayor, former MLA. Uh, he's a well-known person, uh, and then you got yourself, the People's Party candidate, and the NDP's candidate, who's a novice. Uh, how do you battle, you know, sort of being a novice yourself and getting your name out there uh, when you're going up against a well-known incumbent and a challenger and a guy like Terry Lake, who's also uh, got a lot of face recognition and sort of is a well-known personality in his own right? How do you kind of project yourself and compete with that? I think, I, again, I, I put my boots on the ground. I talk to lots of people. I knock on a lot of doors. Uh, and I also leverage the fact that I am not a I'm not a politician, much less a polished politician. Mm. And uh, to some extent, that's what the Green Party stands for: is is doing politics differently. An important part of the uh, Green platform, and an important part of what Elizabeth May has and done in her success, has been crossing party lines, uh, trying to get people together. The main issue that the the Greens have always taken to heart. The whole reason for the party, obviously, is environmental concerns. 
And we've reached a, a stage uh, in the world and in Canada and in this election where politics need to be done differently. And I think that's a message that a, uh, a novice, a newcomer, mm-hmm. uh, someone who's not polished, uh, can actually communicate to, to people better than formidable political opponents uh, with background in, you know, in sort of doing what I'm trying to do now. I think a, a new voice can be a credible voice for, those sorts of ch- for that sort of change. The issue of the environment obviously is a very big platform plank for the Green Party, hence the name. In uh, a big riding like this that has metro centers in it, but also, you know, ranching and agriculture areas and uh, big spaces requiring travel. The challenges are different in a lot of different areas when you talk about greenhouse gas emissions and vehicle use and that kind of thing. How do you approach that in kind of saying, okay, listen, we're we're obviously big on the environment, but we also have some some realities in this riding. And Canada is a big country. The challenges Canada faces to address the climate crisis are different than than lots of places. Different than Europe. Different than our neighbors to the south. Even mm. uh, we're a sparsely populated country, and Camelot Thompson Caribou is a is an example of that. But the Green Plan is about moving to zero emissions. It's not moving to zero energy. It's not moving to zero transportation. Uh, it is uh, absolutely not moving to uh, to zero jobs or economy. It's about transitioning from uh, an unsustainable economy, an unsustainable energy system to something better. So that's the, the sort of climate part. And the green policy is is rooted in sustainability. And when I say that, I mean not just environmental sustainability, which of course is is the biggest threat out there, but also economic sustainability, fiscal responsibility, um, those sort of small C conservative issues that I would like to talk to voters about, about uh, sustainability in terms of the way we deal with our rivers and lakes, uh, the way we deal with Canada as a as a country and as government, the relationship with uh, our First Nations people. All of these things looked at through the lens of the, the green philosophy and the values that the, the Green Party stands for. Uh, I'd like to talk about all of those things, and I think people will be interested to hear and I hope will challenge me about the green policy and in my particular approach and my understanding of it uh, in all of those other areas that concern urban voters and concern more rural voters as well. Does the climate crisis, do you think, is it going to be a big motivator for people in this riding to go to the polls? I think so. And I got started in the sort of environmental sort of politics, I guess, or environmental interest about educating people about what was an impending crisis. Mm. You know, 10 years ago, people had to be told about, people had to be made to understand that this was a problem coming up. But now across the political spectrum, people are, are recognizing this as a problem. I think it will be for, for many voters absolutely top of mind. And even for those voters who have other issues which are more pressing for them at the, at the moment, it'll certainly be one of the top issues and something that they should hold, whoever they're going to vote for or they're thinking about voting for should hold them to account and hold them to make sure that they explain how they're going to deal with this crisis, which it's an existential crisis. It's the only the only one. SNC-Lavalin will fade away, but if we don't deal with the climate, climate crisis, no point in dealing with these other issues. Environments aside, uh, what's what's issue number two for you in this particular writing? I'm not saying it's it, it's issue number two because I think it's the same issue, mm. but obviously the, obviously the, the economy mm. and... Um, fiscal responsibility and how those two things connect. Yeah, so that's my answer. I think the economy. The economy and jobs. Yeah. All right. Well, Ian, uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks, uh, number one, for coming in studio and 
uh, giving up some some time in your day and and uh, I'm sure we'll be doing this again soon. Yes, my pleasure. This I think this is uh, this said earlier. I think this is my job now. So yeah. well, uh, democracy relies on on people uh, taking the courage to step into public life, and uh, whether you agree with what they're doing or not, taking the courage to stand for what you believe in. So, uh, my thanks to you for doing that, and uh, and we'll uh, we'll see you on the campaign trail for sure, and probably in the studio a few more times yet. Great. I appreciate that, Shane. All right. Thanks, Ian. And that's Ian Curry pending a June 26th nomination date where he will be acclaimed. He will soon become the Green Party candidate for the fall federal election, filling out the ballot here in Kamloops. And that brings to an end this edition of Inside Politics. My thanks to my guests today. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL next week. Where the interior stays connected, this is CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. Radio NL, 610 AM. Local News Now.